I'm Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here today with my new friend, Guy Ryder, who's the Director General of the International Labor Organization. Guy, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure, Dan. So, Guy, what is the International Labor Organization? We are a near 100-year-old part of the United Nations system. We were set up well all that time ago, 1919, in the wake of the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, to try to improve working conditions on the understanding that Social justice, fairness at work was a precondition for stability and peace in our societies. All this time later, we're still doing that job. It's an endless task. And I think the thing that is important to underline about the ILO is we bring together not just governments like the rest of the UN system, but also the representatives of workers and of employers, a tripartite system where efforts are joined to bring about this social justice at work. Okay. So what is this tripartite thing that you're, you're saying? What does that mean? Well, it means very simply that if you came to our decision-making bodies, our conference, which meets every year, or our executive, you would see bodies made up, half of them are governments, and then you have trade union representatives, you have employer representatives. They negotiate, they interact, and one of the most important things they do is to negotiate what we call international labor conventions. These are the international treaties which define what is accepted as the rules of the game in the global labor market. Okay, so why was the ILO started and when was it started? Well, the date, I think, says everything, Dan. I mean, it was after the First World War and in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution. And I think the thinking was that it was time to do something about conditions of labor. Think back to how, you know, labor was undertaken 100 years ago. Pretty rough stuff. Not much social protection, not many rules of the game. And I think the Bolshevik Revolution, what happened in Russia, scared a lot of people, scared a lot of the Western democracies, and I think nudged them into the understanding that something needed to be done or something unpleasant might happen. That's the one thing. And the second thing is, already in the conduct of the First World War, the war effort, keeping it going, labor and government had made a lot of deals. And I think there was a degree to which the setting up of the ILO was payback. It was recognition of the effort that had been put in. What was the first treaty that the ILO undertook? Because I think it's very interesting. Yeah. Convention number one, huh? uh, negotiated and adopted in 1919. It's on working time. And what does it say? It says, and I think if you put your mind back there again, you can understand what people are trying to do. It says we want a maximum 40-hour working week. We want a maximum eight-hour working day. We want two days of rest, the weekend, for all workers. This was the vision of in that world of work at that time of what social progress looked like. 100 years ago, we see how much things have changed and frankly become more complicated. So when I think about the ILO, I, I was shocked to, to hear that you all, I shouldn't be shocked, but I was sure. surprised you'd won the Nobel Prize. Why did you win the Nobel Prize and when did you win the Nobel yeah, Prize? Yeah, we got Nobel the Peace Prize. Nobel Peace Prize indeed in, in 1969 on our 50th anniversary. And again, we have to think of the date in question. But I think, of course, I would say this, that there was recognition that for 50 years, and think what those intervening years had seen from 1919 to 1969. Basically, they'd seen descent into authoritarianism and fascism in Europe. They'd seen a war fought, and they'd seen the ILO survive. The only part of the old League of Nations that survived all of these rigors was the ILO. And we pulled through, became part of the United Nations, continued into the era of decolonization, 
modernization of our societies and labor markets. And I think there was recognition that what FDR had described as the wild dream of the ILO was not just a dream, but an organization that was proving its capacity to make a difference in things that really mattered to people in their everyday lives. Let's talk about that in the sense of child labor. So we we were having a conversation earlier in public about the issue of child labor. How many people currently suffer from the the evil of child labor, but compare that to where we were 25 or 30 years ago? right. Well, I mean, the bad news is 152 million children are still engaged in child labor. It's outrageous. And by the way, about half of those are what we would describe as the worst forms of child labor, dangerous to their physical or moral well-being. It's an outrage. It's an outrage. And we're all, you know, we all feel that outrage. And yet... If there is good news to be had from that sad situation, it is that, as you've said, at the beginning of this century, there was 100 million more on top of those figures. So it shows, firstly, that we can make a difference. There is no inevitability about child labor. We have learned over the years what can and needs to be done to reduce and eliminate child labor. And I think we have lent the lie to this idea which is all too easily cited, Dan, that, sorry, we're a poor country, we're underdeveloped, therefore child labor is it's just part, part of, of our deal. lives. Yeah. So let's just, can we just underline that for a minute? Because I've heard that multiple, multiple times. You travel over the world, I do too. Yeah. I've heard that excuse, in, I don't know, a dozen countries, two dozen sure. countries. So, mm. so that's not, that's actually not true. It's not true. And it is what you've just said. It's an excuse. Now, nobody is going to deny, and I would be the last to deny, that poverty and developmental issues are issues when it comes to combating child labor. Yeah. No doubt sure. about that. But we have member states at exactly the same level, I'm not going to name them, that exactly similar circumstances of poverty, of developmental regression or need, but they have very different levels of child labor. So you can intervene in similar economic developmental circumstances and get very different results depending initially on political commitment to make a difference. And then I think to a great extent, the help that can be extended to make these countries move forward. So what about, I want to talk about Bangladesh, because I think I think there's a before and after what happened in this awful tragedy in Bangladesh several years ago. I think it in some ways reflects what happened in the late 19th century. I think it was the late 19th century when the Triangle Fire That's happened, right. shirtwaist factory happened in New you, York. You have it. And it was there was a before and after, and it was it broke in some ways almost broke or broke the social contract. And I think what happened in Bangladesh. Tell us about what happened in Bangladesh, yep. and what what role you played in that because I think it's it, it reflects a little bit the kind of roles that the ILO plays today. Yeah, Dan. In April 2013, a factory building collapsed in Dhaka, Bangladesh, killing just over 1,100 workers, most of them young women from rural communities. And it shocked us all, of course. It shocked the conscience of the world. We were on the ground in Bangladesh three days after that happened. We immediately were able to negotiate with the government and workers and employers organization of Bangladesh a plan to render this garment industry, this ready-made garment industry in Bangladesh, which is crucial to Bangladesh's development path. It's crucial to their anti-poverty strategies. Our view was it was not a case of trying to close down this industry. It was a case of trying to improve it, to make it sustainable, so that people could go to work 
in that industry and not risk their lives by so doing. How many people work in the te- in the garment industry in Bangladesh? Yeah, it's a big employer. It's around the four million mark, and a lot four of these people, people, a lot of these are young women from rural backgrounds who are provided thus with their real one opportunity to get into labour markets and make something of their lives and get out of poverty. At, at so it sa- matters. At the same, so it does matter, and it's an important. But at the same time, if I'm in the United States or I'm in Europe, and I find if I realize that the shirt I wa- bought yep. is made in a in a death trap, yep. I'm not going to want to buy the shirt. So there's a interdependency between yep. what I'm buying and yep. and what the labor and standards standards well, are in the factory, right? Dan, you're making the key point because uh, the real lever that we were able to apply in Bangladesh was precisely the lever of the supply chains that links those factories. In Bangladesh, if you're Nike, you don't want to say I'm I'm using death trap factories to make my shoes. Any household name brand you can, here, you can think of anybody, uh, and they're all there, huh? And they're all there. So we were able to gather, and the industry put its hand up, stepped up to the plate through an alliance and an accord with the global industry, those supplying in Bangladesh, and with international labour groups. We were able to put in place whole program heavily financed by in this case by the UK by Canada and the Netherlands uh, to basically inspect all of the factories engaged in the in the international you supply 1100 chain factories? we did and we structurally inspected them those places are no longer the death traps that they once were they've either been approved remedial action has been taken or they've been closed down one of those three we have not had a rana plaza since 2013. Since now, am I saying everything is fine and perfect and dandy? No, no I am not, no. because that's not how life but, happens. But, but, Guy, at the same time, if I think about, okay, who would the government of Bangladesh, labor unions in Bangladesh, and factory owners in Bangladesh trusted to run some sort of a process because everyone collectively knew there was a need for somebody to do something in the wake of this disaster and this tragedy I can't think of who else they they could have called other than you guys. We were called and we went. And this you is went. the point, Dan. But I think there's something really important in all of this. We made it clear right from the outset because after this terrible tragedy, the brands were ready to pick up and leave. Huh? They were ready to go home and say, "Sorry, we and cannot be associated." Millions of jobs are at stake in Bangladesh. Yeah, who wants that, to be associated? This is like a. It drives a hole through their whole development strategy, and we were very clear, saying, "We want you to get your industry right." We want your industry to stay, we want it to be sustainable, and we want to help you. And that was the basis upon which we're able to, as you say, not only be called, but be able to, to respond to, to, to the to country's needs. To restore or reset the social contract. You got it. And Bangladesh, in the global supply chain for ready-made garments, does two things. It's really bottom of the price. It's really the, the bargain basement prices. They can do it cheaper than probably anybody else, and high volume very high volume, and they have good transport infrastructure. They can get the stuff out of the factory door and out of the country. Yes, fast. So they've got a lot of things that make them attractive to the industry, but the industry will not, despite all of that, source there if they cannot be sure that we're doing the right things by the workers involved. Exactly, exactly. So talk about the way in which you work with organizations like the IFC. Yeah. Well, the IFC, the private arm of the World Bank, the private investment branch, works with us very closely, in particular on a project, a program rather, called Better Work. And this relates quite closely to what we have said about Bangladesh. Better Work is a program by which we go in, the ILO goes in to factories, again, 
very frequently connected to global supply chains in the textile and garment industry, were able to get into the factories, monitor what is going on, help factories to improve things where they need to be improved, and we can report on what's going on in those factories. Now, that has two effects. It gives, again, the brands high confidence that they can source in these factories safely, securely, in the knowledge that they're not going to get into the sorts of things that they would rather avoid. And it enables the country's concern, the government's, to attract that investment. So we're creating what we think is a virtuous circle. We're doing the right things by the, the workers involved in the factories. We're helping the governments to attract investment, which they need to get their development processes going. And we're giving a degree of reputational assurance, insurance, I should say, to companies that this is somewhere it's safe to go. So everybody wins from this. It sounds like it. Tell me, Guy, about the you, – you're coming up in your 100th year anniversary. Correct. And you said, we're not going to throw a birthday party. We're not going to make a big cake. You said, we're going to do something different. Tell us about what the something different is. Yeah, we decided that we can't just have a birthday party. We need, of course, to applaud ourselves for 100 years of good work, but more than that, look forward to the future of work. We live at a time, I think, Dan, when there is extraordinary change in the world of work. It's quick, it's deep, it's global, and people are pretty scared and uncertain about it. What we are saying is that there's a need to look into the changes taking place, what's causing these changes, what are the dangers, what are the worries, but more than that, what are the opportunities? What can we make of this future? I think there is a tendency, and I deplore it, for people to believe and policymakers to say that the future is going to be as is already decided. Technology, robots, AI, it's all decided. It's waiting for us. I don't subscribe to that. You know, we, people, human actors, we need to decide what we want the future of work to look like, and then we have to do what is necessary to get to that future. So this is not a debate about technology or demography. It's a debate about policy, and it's a debate about our preferences for the future of work and what we intend to do to bring about that future. So if someone asked you a question in the audience about something called universal basic income, would yeah. you tell folks what is universal basic income, why is this an issue that's coming up, hmm. and what is your personal take on this issue? Yeah. But the idea of universal basic income is that all citizens, regardless of their employment status or anything else, should be guaranteed a, a basic revenue every week, every month. They get a paycheck from the government that can keep them going. I think this, has, uh, this, this idea is gaining currency from the idea, which I do not subscribe to, that in the future work is going to become scarce. There won't be enough to go round and therefore we can no longer rely on work to provide the levels and predictability of income which we've traditionally had in the past. I am not a fan of universal basic income for the following reasons. Firstly and above all, it feels to me like we're giving up on work. We're saying, hey, work can't do it any longer. You know, the way you and I earn our living, the way we get income is by going to work. Yeah. Now, some would say, well, that's a pretty tough thing, but it's a reality we live in. But work is not only about the material goods it provides. If we don't work, there's no purpose. It's a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose in our You're lives. You're absolutely right. I'm buying that. I agree a with fulfillment, you. fulfillment, huh? And fulfillment. I totally agree with that. Arthur Brooks, who's the president yeah. of the American Enterprise Institute, has written a paper about this issue of earned success. Yes. 
And I think it this gets a little bit at your your point that this yeah. is about. You said you 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 quoted Freud. Yeah, Freud had a great quote. He says, "Work is the way the individual connects with reality." And that's a good way to say it. That's huh? very because, interesting. Because you know. Anybody who's been through unemployment for a prolonged period knows what it does to you. It's not the fact that you ain't got much money in your pocket. It's not the fact that you're it's not... It's stultifying. There. It kills you. It, it kills, kills you inside, you. huh? It kills you inside. Yeah. So the idea of a future without work, but you get UBI, you get an income, you get a check. That's not a future I want for myself. No. It's not a future I want for my kids. So, and by the way, there's all sorts of other arguments about fiscal sustainability okay. and, you know, well, whether it's a good way of using resources. Is everybody going to be in the gig economy 20 years from now? Good question. There's a debate about whether the gig economy as we know it today is just a niche, huh? just a niche that will continue there's to be a niche. one school of thought is it's just yeah. a niche. The other is this is a precursor of what we see today of what will become general in the future. And I think, honestly, the jury is still out on that. I don't have a particular opinion. It will depend, again, how we decide to regulate our labor markets to permit that to happen or to limit it. But if the gig economy comes through, we have to think very carefully about how we regulate the institutions we need for it. The very same technology, digital technologies, could be used to create a future of work which I think we would all welcome. Freedom of people to work when and where they want. Really a liberating experience. But the very same technologies, if applied in a different way, could create a new generation of 21st century digital day laborers. It would be the application of 21st century technologies to produce a 19th century way of working. And, and that, that, was not a, that was not a good way of working. That was a lousy way of working. It was a lousy Think way of working. Think of the, the docker lining up on the dockside in the morning to see if the foreman was going to give him a day's work. The agricultural labor Yeah, that's hoping. not so great. That ain't what we want. No. No, it's not what we want. So at the end of the day, though, it's about policy choices and the collective choices that we make about what the future work is. It's not just some sort of predetermined future big turnout for you. I think it reflects sort of a hunger for leadership and through a series of challenges that the world faces that no country can solve alone and that we need collective action. And so the ILO was invented at a time when we needed collective action. We still need collective action. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. 